Welcome to Sound Prince Audio Magazine, a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Sound Prince is underwritten by the American Printing House for the Blind and the Louisville Downtown Lions Club. I'm Carla Rushevel. I'm your host for this week's magazine. This is Sound Prince for April 24, 2016. Immediate past president Mitch Pomerantz of the American Council of the Blind has just posted the following announcement from the U.S. Department of Justice on the ACB leadership list. The Department of Justice has launched a new Accessible Technology section for ADA.gov, its Americans with Disabilities Act website, to further assist covered entities and people with disabilities to understand how the ADA applies to certain technologies, such as websites, electronic book readers, online courses, and point-of-sale devices. Covered entities have long-standing obligations to make their programs, goods, services, and activities accessible, including those they provide online or via other technology. The new web pages compile in one place the Department's technical assistance and guidance about accessible technology, as well as information about the Department's accessible technology enforcement efforts, regulation development, and other federal accessible technology resources and initiatives. To find out more about the ADA, visit ada.gov or call the Department's toll-free ADA information line at 800-514-0301. The 2016 Conference and Reunion of the KSB Alumni Association will be held at the Ramada Inn North in Louisville on August 5 and 6. Please make note of these new dates. More details about the reunion will be coming soon. You know it's spring when the APH Museum presents its annual tour around Louisville. Each year the tour visits a different area of town or highlights a new theme. Most of the time it's a walking tour, but this year participants rode on a bus and visited 24 different industrial sites in Louisville. Adam Rushevel, of course, went on this historic three-hour tour of the city, and he shares the opening remarks of Mike Hudson, APH Museum Director, on page two. Everyone's buzzing and talking about the much-anticipated low-cost Braille display coming out this fall. The device is called the Orbit Reader 20, and it has been developed by Transforming Braille Group. Larry Scutcon from the American Printing House for the Blind has been one of the leaders in this effort to make reading Braille electronically affordable for everyone. He visits with us on page 3 and gives us an in-depth look at the Orbit Reader 20. Most states provide some form of services to older blind Americans through their rehabilitation programs. At the April 22 meeting of the Kentucky Office for the Blind Statewide Rehabilitation Council, Gay Panel of the OFB Bowling Green Office presented an excellent overview of Kentucky's independent living services. Since their inception in the 1980s, these services have generally been thought of as being for older individuals, but Gay explains expansion of the program to serve some youth as well. Listen to her remarks on page 4. And on page 5 is the Sound Prince calendar. Page 2. Everybody hear me? Yeah. My name is Mike Hudson, and I want to welcome everybody on our uh, bus tour that we call Smoke, Steel, and the River. Mm -hmm. um, I'll be your tour narrator today, and um, our architectural tour of Louisville's historic industries is sponsored by uh, my museum, the Museum of the American Printing House for the Blind. 
Roberta stand up for me, please. This is Roberta Williams, and Roberta is going to be helping provide some better uh, visual descriptions of the buildings on our tour. Uh, Roberta has worked in our uh, public affairs program for a long time and is the manager of our Insights Art Program, uh, a juried art contest that we do every year for artists who are blind and visually impaired across the country. And uh, she has a particular unique and wonderful style in describing things, and so we're lucky to have her here today. And um, also let me introduce ben, ben Flanagan, who's up here in front. He's our expert in navigating the Louisville metro area. Please do not anger Ben. <laughs> now, the purpose of this tour is to explore Louisville's industrial heritage and visit some significant surviving examples of industrial architecture from a number of periods in the city's development. The sites on our tour today were selected either for their architectural and historical significance or as representatives of some key industries we want to talk about, or in several unnamed cases, just because we liked them a lot. <laughs> now, although we won't be able to take you past every important industrial site in the city, we hope to show you enough to spur your own curiosity about the, magnif uh, the magnificent manufacturing history of our city. So our tour format is follows. We're going to depart APH here in a few moments. We're going to proceed roughly west heading down Story Avenue, eventually passing through Butchertown, Phoenix Hill, Smoketown, the uh, Industrial Corridor, and Portland, before our last site, which is the Sneed Building on Market Street. For the sake of time, this year we're going to be bypassing Rubbertown which is unfortunate because it's also a very important part of our industrial history. But what we have found the last couple times we've done the tour is that we missed Portland altogether. And since Portland has some of the earliest examples of industrial architecture in the city, we definitely wanted to make it there. But but Rubbertown is definitely worth a visit, even if you, know, you have to wear a gas mask when you go over there. Um, so as I drive along, I want to encourage everybody to ask questions. Just raise your hand. Um, if, if I don't know the answer to your question, we'll, we'll find somebody that does. Um, we do have a bathroom at the rear of the bus. Please feel free to use it at your convenience. When we finish, put all of your any trash that you have back in the little box that we gave you and just leave it on your seat and we'll pick those up when we leave when we leave the with when we leave the bus. So now let's start our tour. Um, so um, first off I want to give you just kind of a general overview of the industrial history of our city. Basically I th hope everybody knows that Louisville is where it is because of the falls of the Ohio. Right? I want to see everybody nod your head. Okay, so what happened basically was uh, a lot of commerce and, and, and uh, traffic was coming down the river, but for most of the year you couldn't get around the falls of the Ohio, and so you had to stop, you had to take everything off your boat, you had to carry it around to the other side of the falls and, and proceed on your journey, which mean, meant that you needed a warehouse and you needed a place to get a drink and a cold, uh, uh, something uh, liquid to drink and, uh, and something to eat and a place to stay. And so gradually that grew up into, um, into what we call Louisville. And so Louisville's identity early on was as a mercantile center based on freight and warehousing. By 1830, when you look at the census, there's very little manufacturing to speak of. And what there is is primarily inspired by extractive industries. So you've got a few cotton mills, you've got some brick and pottery kilns, some tobacco processing mills, a few distilleries, a few flour mills, a foundry or two, and some machine shops. Now, as in many southern communities, slavery and the agricultural system of land ownership and prestige that slavery supported had always been a barrier to manufacturing. 
but primarily in Louisville there was too much money to be made in shipping and warehousing to allow much capital to drift off into manufacturing. Now in the 1840s that started to change and major populations of German and Irish immigrants moved into town bringing their trade skills in brewing and meat packing and tanning and soap making. And by 1850s, Louisville had become the third largest meatpacking town in the nation. And Louisville kind of had evolved by that time into a middleman between the north and the south. Um, so uh, a lot of agricultural products would come up from the south to Louisville where they might be start to be processed before being passed on along to northern industries. And a lot of northern goods, manufactured goods, would come down the river to Louisville and then, and then be sent on down to the south where they would be sold. Now the city emerged from the Civil War largely unscathed and the railroad began to replace the river as the primary transportation tool. Uh, by the way, the Ellen Railroad uh, had sent out its first train in, in 1855. And so after the war, banks began releasing a lot of capital from investments in trade to investments in manufacturing. And Louisville emerges as an important manufacturer of some kind of interesting things. Agricultural implements, cement, furniture, ironwork, oil, leather, wagons, whiskey, wool, and paper. If we think about all that list today, there's probably only one thing on that list that we could still talk about, right? And it would be bourbon, right? Which isn't too bad of a thing. But there were 436 factories in town in 1860, and by 1880, there were 1,108. Louisville had a large force of skilled and unskilled labor. It had a great public transportation system based on streetcars, first pulled by mules and then later electric. Um, it had a series of railroad bridges that went up across the river and that spurred the growth of the steel industry in town and the transportation industry. Now a great many of those 19th century manufacturing concerns were housed in typical industrial buildings of the period. We're going to see a bunch of them today. Um, in fact, I just want to make sure that, and I know I've joked with you about this, but if you are not expecting to see a lot of brick buildings today, you are on the wrong tour. Um, so make sure that you're into brick buildings. The, the vast majority of these buildings are multi-story, load-bearing brick structures. Then the, along comes the 1817 Louisville Industrial Exposition and the 1883 Southern Exposition, and they highlight features of... of um, should I ask, answer my wife's phone call? No. No? Okay. The answer is no. The period from the turn of the century until America's entry into World War I sees the real blossoming of Louisville as a manufacturing center. The city is able to capitalize on its outstanding transportation network and rich sources of critical raw materials such as coal and hardwood timber from eastern Kentucky and iron. The city also has really good utilities, a great water department. It starts, it develops a good gas company, a good electric company. And all those are necessary um, for industrial growth. You start to see another thing happen after uh, the turn of the century where a lot of small family-owned operations start getting merged together into larger companies. And so you see fewer companies, but larger, larger companies. Um, so employment doesn't really drop so much as the nature of the employment changes. Then after World War I, it starts uh, a lot of new uh, industrial growth in the city, 153 new plants in the decade after, after World War I. And uh, we, people who plants in Louisville start making scales and tractors and automobiles, and we move into the refinery business. 
And um, that early 20th century expansion in industrial growth coincided with a period of a dramatic change in industrial factory design. And you start seeing a lot of reinforced concrete buildings. And reinforced concrete, unlike load-bearing brick, allows you to go much, much higher. And so you start seeing bigger and bigger and bigger buildings, which goes along with the, uh, the way that these companies were being organized as bigger and bigger companies. Post-war, post-World War II, um, during World War II, Louisville um, really expands again, and you get companies like DuPont and the Naval Ordnance Station and National Carbide, BF Goodrich, and Jeff Boat across the river, all responding to the need for uh, synthetic rubber and all kinds of different products that the Army needed uh, uh, to, to fight the war. Uh, and post-war, industry started to move outside the city limits. So you've got things like the Ford plant on Grade Lane and the GE Appliance Park, which was built in 1951. <coughs> now, just to bring it up to the future, at, after 1970, manufacturing in our town started to drop dramatically. And today, manufacturing is, is, while still there are many manufacturing concerns in town, Louisville is not the industrial giant that it was in the first three quarters of the 20th century. And things have started to change. So that's kind of your overview. So we are at our first stop, actually, although we haven't even left the parking lot. And this is actually why the American Printing House for the Blind developed this tour in 2008 in the first place, is because we were interested in helping people understand where APH fit into the industrial history of our city. So Louisville is the home of many unique industries. You know, just to name a few, you can think about distilling, bourbon, tobacco processing, horse racing, baseball man, bat manufacturing at Louisville Slugger, but possibly the most unique is represented by our first tour stop this morning. The American Printing House for the Blind was founded in 1858 to publish books in a tactile format for people with vision loss. Initially, APH was located um, on the other side of the bus at uh, Kentucky School for the Blind in their 1852 uh, main building. And incidentally, that grand building was demolished in 1967. Um, APH built its first building in 1883, a three-story brick Italianate structure with a two-story wing on the back and a one-story plate storage vault to the east. Now, over the years, uh, new structures were slowly added on all sides until most of that 1883 structure has been obscured. From our position here on the bus, actually, not from my position, for, but maybe if you're farther back on the bus, you can see down that narrow little corridor, and you can kind of see three window openings there with uh, Italianate, flattened Italianate limestone arches. Um, and that is what little that you can see of the 1883 building from the outside. Now, if you go up on the roof, you can see the portico of its front entrance just barely peeking out of the roof. But mostly we don't let people go over there. Um, now, you can see pictures of the original building when you tour our factory museum. And let me plug that. We are free to the public Monday through Saturday. Um, we're open 8.30 to 4.30 Monday through Friday and 10 to uh, 3 on Saturdays. Today, the printing house stretches all the way back to Brownsboro Road, encompasses almost 280,000 square feet, and is the largest manufacturer of Braille, recorded books, large print books, and educational and daily living aids for the blind and visually impaired in the world. The largest in the world. The building, which became the public facade of APH on Frankfurt Avenue, was built in 1955. And if you'll pull forward just to the front of the parking lot.
So much of the front of our building was designed in a style known as Bauhaus, also called international style. Um, our 1955 administration building was designed by Louisville architect Arthur Taffel. Now over the years, international style buildings, once noted for their modern, clean lines, have fallen out of favor. And uh, one of my uh, social rehabilitation projects here at APH has been to educate our staff and our visitors about the origin of the Bauhaus movement and the significance of our classic international style building. And I'd be willing to warrant that most of my generation went to elementary schools that were designed in international style. Do you want to say anything about the building, um, Roberta? The, the impression of the building as you look at the building, the facade, the front of the building we're looking at right now, if you're looking back behind you, that is, is of a great big square box. It is made of brick for the most part, but in, so it's not, a t Mike said that simplicity was a note of the Bauhaus movement after all. And, and that movement had a kind of rejection of some of the earlier principles you'll find in a lot of buildings around Louisville where they're very ornate, very decorative. But the decoration here is a way of kind of moving the eye up the building. So to interrupt the stone, you have parallel rows of limestone that kind of outlines sections of the building. Uh, the, if you look at the first floor, you see that there is a limestone band that runs straight from one side of the facade to the other. And then as you go up the building, there are parallel lines that continue to the top. One difference is that the building facade, instead of going from one end to the other, in the very middle of it, or not, it's actually offset, it's not quite the middle, but there is a, um, a, a the front part of it where the door is now interrupts those, uh, at, at least on the upper stories, interrupts those bands. So you're drawn to look straight into the very front of the building and to walk into it that way. Thank you. Okay, we can head out. We're going to take a, a right onto you also notice the distinctive limestone uh, crenellated fences that you'll see over here in this end of town. Um, there were a number of quarries that were located here in Clifton, um, Crescent Hill area. There was a city workhouse, in fact, down here where if you got thrown into jail, you had to go quarry stone. You really did have to go quarry stone. Um, and a lot of that stone ended up being used in the fences on this area. Right, so as part of our, uh, when we redid our front lawn, we um, had a local sculptor um, put in a, a fountain feature at the front of our entrance that is like a braille book that's open, and then the water pours out of the book. Um, it has our motto carved into it, so it's a, it's a nice feature. You'll be able to see that. It's all covered up now, so we couldn't very well see it today. Then come back and see it walk our lawn. So that's what I want you to do when you look at a building next time is don't just look at it. I mean, start really studying and look at the things that are different and change about it that draw your eye. And uh, I think that you'll find that you'll, you'll be surrounded by just ingenious structures that have been that have been put up for different reasons over time. And um, I know we enjoy looking at that, and we've enjoyed re-educating our own uh, staff. We can head out then anytime you want. Uh, re-educating our own staff about how great Bauhaus architecture is and the new international style. They tolerate us. <laughs>
So thank you all very much for being with us on our tour of industrial uh, history of Louisville. We've really just skimmed the surface, but we have gotten to see a number of the really cool structures that are still standing. And um, uh, I do I do urge you to look at your own neighborhood, at the buildings that are in your own neighborhood, and and uh, and learn a little bit more about them. Find books and more in accessible media with APH's free-of-charge Louis database. HTTP colon slash slash L-O-U-I-S dot A-P-H dot org. Locate accessible educational materials from nearly 200 different agencies. APH products and textbooks can also be located using Louis. New extended searching now available with free Louis Plus. Visit soon. HTTP colon slash slash L-O-U-I-S dot A-P-H dot org. Many book materials help Braille users jot notes quickly. Pull APH's mini-book Braille binder out of your pocket and begin to write on the mini-book slate in just seconds. Materials are sold separately so that you can choose the combination that's right for you. Call the American Printing House for the Blind, toll-free, 800-223-1839, or visit www.aph.org. Page three. Larry Skidcon is the Director of Technology Product Research at the American Printing House for the Blind. Today he's visiting with us on Sound Prints to talk about the new low-cost Braille display that uh, has been introduced at CSUN in March, and there's a lot of buzz about that everywhere. And Larry, we're just real glad that you're going to be um, talking with us and telling us a little more about the capabilities of this great new device. So welcome. Well, thank you, Carla. It's great to be here. So if you would, you can just kind of start where you'd like and we'll just go from there. So the Transforming Braille Group is a, uh, a uh, conglomeration, a uh, collaboration of 10 blindness organizations around the world that decided that there had to be a way to uh, break this logjam of the cost of refreshable Braille technology. It, it hasn't really changed or gone down in the last 30 years, and that doesn't follow the model uh, of the way consumer electronics go, which is, uh, was stated very uh, <clears throat> concisely by Moore in Moore's Law, which says that the uh, price halves and the power doubles every 18 to 24 months of normal consumer electronics. So Transforming Braille Group, uh, each of the members put up uh, money that totaled up to $1.25 million to um, create a breakthrough technology and we identified, we, we looked at 60, over 60 other projects that were going on in the world and picked uh, the offering that Orbit Research had. And at CSUN, as you mentioned, uh, this the prototypes were um, delivered and released and announced. And what it is is a a 20-cell Braille display, and, and what Transforming Braille Group 
its whole purpose was to to increase literacy among blind citizens around the world. So in many developing countries, Braille is uh, impractical. Um, we're in an interesting time right now. We're in, you know, in uh, in Africa and India. There's blind students using smartphones with speech, and that's great. But no, no Braille and uh, embossing Braille and shipping it is expensive and uh, takes a lot of <clears throat> a lot of uh, infrastructure. The idea of this was to create a reader that would both let you read content uh, stored on the device itself, so without a smartphone or anything, or and to let you connect it to a host device like an iPhone or Android or a PC or a Mac. Uh, so you can use it either way in a, in a standalone configuration. It reads files from an SD card and has some local functionality to move through the files and set bookmarks and find things. It even has a little note taker on it. You can take about 15 pages worth of notes at a time. Um, has a little file manager to uh, help you manage what's on the SD card. And uh, then it also connects <clears throat> via Bluetooth or USB to uh, host devices so you can not only read what's prepared on a card, but connect it to a screen reader and read, you know, anything that's available that's accessible. Okay, let me ask you. Uh, the note taker, 15 pages, 15 braille pages, print pages? No, print, print pages. Print pages, okay. About 15,000 characters, but you can have multiple files. That right, that's what I was going to say. You, you, yeah. you fill that up and you save it on your SD card and you start another file. Yeah, it's it's certainly not Microsoft Word, but you know you can use Word just by running it on your PC and connecting mm -hmm. the Braille display mm -hmm. with your screen reader. Now, now let me let me uh, get our expectations. Yes. Uh, in line here. Good. So there's no spell check on it. Okay. There's no. There's not even a translator on it. You're okay. just writing in raw Braille. Okay. So if which is great for you or other Braille readers, if you want to get it back to a sighted person, you need to reverse translate it. Or write in uncontracted Braille. Yep, you could do that as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So it it has then one file type. So it I would it would always be a Braille file that I would be writing. You you no, don't have you, you just said you could write in computer braille too. So you could write text files or braille files. You just can't translate between the two. Not on the device. Yeah. You can take okay. It. You know, there's that. Those are some of the questions that people are asking. Well, will it let me do this? And will it let me do that? And and there has to be limitations. I mean, there just does. Okay. All right. So well, uh, and and let me say this too about that. Um, so we we created a utility to translate files. So if you get a document from someone and want to send it over to the card to read later, mm -hmm. you can do that. Um, just it, there's a we added a, uh, a send to Braille shortcut for Windows. Oh. So you okay. uh, point to a file, right click, hit send to and Braille, and it just quickly translates it into UEB and then you can copy that over the card. We're going to also make a 
back from Braille shortcut. That's not done yet. Okay. The Send to Braille is actually already done, and you can download it and use it today. It's at um, tech.aph.org slash LT. Okay. And uh, you can use it. Uh, it's, it's pretty nice. It uh, does a good job, but you're right. Um, if you write something in Braille on the device, it's it, there's um, if you want to send it back to somebody in print, you got to send it back to the computer and reverse translate it. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So and we've got a 20-cell display. We have a great way to read Braille and to use Braille. And when you talk about this goal of expanding the use of Braille, um, I. I I think that's the most exciting part of this whole project is that, oh yeah, I mean, with the price, um, because the, the, the actual cost of making it is what, around 300, 350 bucks, something mm-hmm. like that, and, uh, or at least that's the, that's the price that the people participating in this project, well, and that's, that's what you all are, are, are going to be uh, basically paying for the basic device. But then there's things right. that will get added to it. And, of course, each time you add something on, that's a little bit of extra cost. Um, however, uh, it'll it'll be a pretty nice product for just a fraction of what Braille has cost us in the past. And, and it might not do all the things, you know, that... that our major um, note takers do, but for many people, in being able to have Braille just virtually at their fingertips to carry around, and and not having to pay thousands and thousands of dollars for it, uh, I think I think it's tremendous. I've always felt, Larry, that when they talk about only ten percent of the blind people read Braille, I I have never felt that that was really true. Um, I think a lot more people read Braille, know Braille, but they don't use it a lot because, for all the reasons you gave, and and I think yeah, it's tremendous. And, you know, another thing that's keeping people from using Braille is, um, I hate I hate to use this word, but the gatekeeper syndrome. So the, the really the only things that a lot of people can get in Braille are the things that someone decided to put in Braille. Uh-huh. But when you connect this to a smartphone... You have got the world at your fingertips. Very true. Now, it's not. It's not going to be textbook quality Braille. It's going to be what we lovingly call quick and dirty Braille. Well, tell us a, a little more about. It. Tell us what it's going to look like. Okay, I've got one right in front of me here, and um, it's about six inches wide, four inches from front to back, and about an inch tall. The closest thing to you is the Braille display itself, and to the left and right of the cells are um, the uh, panning buttons. Mm -hmm. It uses um, 8-dot Braille, but don't let that uh, scare you because most things that you read in contracted Braille are going to be in 6-dot. The uh, 8-dot is for using computer braille, which uh, many of us will never use, <laughs> right? but it's there there if you need it. And uh, then behind the braille display as you're moving towards the back of the unit are, 
our three keys, uh, one wide one, which is the space bar in the middle, and then one to the left and right, which are dots seven and eight that you would use for computer braille things, or if you're in the editor, they act as the uh, backspace and enter key. Like other note takers do then, mm -hmm. similarly. Okay. And then right behind that, as you keep moving towards the back, is a five-way cursor pad with up, down, left, and right, and select in the center. Mm. And then furthest uh, towards the back are the other six Braille input keys. Mm -hmm. um, now, if you go around the corner and look on the back edge, there's a, a recessed area. <clears throat> and in that recessed area, um, from left to right, as you're looking at it from the front, is a a power button on the left side, then an SD card slot, and then a USB micro connector. And that's how you charge it or connect it to a PC with a USB uh, cable. Oh, just like your iPhone. It, well, yeah, except, the, uh, yeah, this is using the micro and not mm -hmm. the lightning connector. Okay. Yeah. Oh, all right. It's okay. uh, what, what most of the Android phones are using right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. And about how how does it compare in in weight to um, some of the existing note takers out there, or is it possible to to compare it? Well, it weighs about a pound. Okay. So it's lighter than some and heavier than others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's not heavy by any means. Um, but I could put that in my purse. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, you know. The, the other neat thing about it is there are, uh, although this one I'm using doesn't have it, when, when it comes out, it'll have little rings in the plastic case that you can connect a strap to. And, and, I'm, and I'm sure other people will be offering carrying cases as well, like executive mm -hmm. products. And I know Orbit has uh, stated that they'll be uh, uh, making a case available for it for sale. I think really one of the most uh, interesting things about this, though, is the Braille that it produces. <clears throat> it's okay. um, I've heard people uh, compare it to signage Braille, and I think that's pretty accurate. It, mm. it looks like the Braille you would read, like on a um, your hotel room. Uh, I've heard it's very, it's very good, very yeah, very it's crisp, and yes, and you can't push it down, uh, so. I know us experienced Braille readers don't uh, press hard on our Braille, but I know new people sometimes do to, uh, as they're learning and perhaps people with neuropathy in their mm -hmm. fingers. Mm -hmm. uh, so so how is the speed, the, re the refreshing speed then of, of the dots? Uh, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to let you uh, <clears throat> listen to it here. Okay. Uh, it's different than the uh, than the piezoelectric uh, cells because with those they all go up at once, and this goes from left to right. It does it quickly though, in about a half a second. And here I'm just I'm just uh, going through a book. I'm going to hold the phone down close to it. It actually will be a little quieter than this, but I kind of like this sound. So there, it just refreshed the line. Here's another one. Oh. That sound. Just very quickly. Yeah, about a mm -hmm. half a second. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's immediate. The first two dots on the uh, cells on the left are immediate, and the rest mm -hmm. of it updates like within a half a second. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit, a, a little small, 
amount of time then between each line. Um, but for many Braille readers who are not really fast Braille readers, that won't affect them very much. Well, this was um, this was one of the compromises we had to make with it yes. to keep this yeah. price down, and um, we recognize that it's not for everyone. Right. Um, most of the people that we've tested it with, whether they're experienced or new, have found it to be uh, not objectionable. I have heard um, from we, some very experienced Braille readers that the Braille is, is very good. <laughs> right after CSUN, when the announcements first came out, uh, we went to uh, one of the the roundabouts. The Greater Louisville Council of the Blind has a roundabout each Friday, and people came in, and the Braille displays had, you know, the announcements had come out, and it was all the buzz. Everybody, oh, have you seen it? No, haven't seen it. Well, I wonder if it'll do this. I wonder if it'll, and, and Larry, I mean, this, the excitement and, and the electricity in the room, just people thinking about the possibility, um, was amazing. Are there uh, are there any other things we need to know about this? Um, well, uh, well I, I should be right up front. One of the other compromises with this is that it does not have cursor writhing buttons. Okay. Now, for reading, that's not a big deal. True. Um, for editing, it's it's a nice feature to have, but it's a, again, it's one of those things where, you know, to keep the cost down. Yes. We decided that they weren't that important. Well, and, and you know, the nice thing about this is, for the the anticipated price, it's in the reach of people that are are working for a living and might not be able to afford a five thousand dollar device but are, are interested in braille and, mm -hmm. uh, and and know what they're getting into it's uh it, it's a good compromise and will aph aph is going to be the distributor here in the united states we are uh-huh it'll be available uh, we, we're i'm very hesitant to say when things are available because for some reason People get mad when you're not right, but they get even madder when you don't tell them anything. <laughs> so so I, we, we pick expect, your poison, Larry. <laughs> that's right. We expect this to be available this fall, say the September, October time frame. Wouldn't it be great to have it ready at annual meeting? No, oh, <laughs> that would be superb. Yep, but we'll be bringing it to the summer conventions this uh, oh, great. months as well. All right. Well, that's people. that's a good reason to go to the summer conventions is to see. Yes, it is. It absolutely <laughs> is. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this and just um, really look forward to hearing more announcements and updates on the Orbit Reader 20. Thank All you. Right. Thank you, Carla. Page four. Today we have uh, Gay Panel, uh, who is uh, a VR administrator, and going to talk to us about the independent living programs. Thank you. It's good to be invited uh, to be with you all today to talk about our independent living services. Uh, for those of you who've been around the agency for a while, you're going to be familiar with some of what I'm going to say, but maybe it'll be a good update for you. 
but because there may be some who are not so familiar with it, um, I'm going to give a little bit of, of just fundamental information as well. With our, the Independent Living Program, uh, as administered through the Office for the Blind, actually has two components. Um, within the house, we call them independent living for people who are less than 55 years of age. And then we have our older individuals who are blind program, which is independent living for people who are 55 and older. Um, we run them parallel. So if we're doing our day-to-day -day business, as far as the counselors are concerned, who are actually working and providing direct services, uh, there's very little notice that there's actually two programs in place. The purpose of independent living services in general is to allow this agency to provide services to enhance uh, people's abilities to live as independently as possible. So our goal would be that the individuals that we come in contact would have improved skills or at least be able to maintain their skills that would allow them to function as independently as they can within their chosen environment. Um, so that might mean different things to different people as to where they choose to live. Um, as I mentioned, there's, there's really two programs, and I'm sure all of you probably know that, that means there's uh, really two funding tracks um, that's important there, and so that allows us to run those two programs with um, but a little bit of difference within those funding tracks. That means there's two administrating agencies from the federal level. Uh, the Independent Living Program recently had a change that moved it to another um, program federally, which I'll mention in a moment. Um, but the older individuals who are blind program has stayed with uh, Rehabilitation, Rehabilitation Services Administration, RSA, as most of us call it. And, and I'm sure you're familiar with that, with uh, having been with the Office for the Blind or around it a lot. I want to mention to you who the staff are because as you all represent different areas of the state, I think it's important for you to know who your uh, independent living counselor is out in the state. And I want to mention their geographic area uh, because we are a small staff. Um, there are seven staff plus myself. So there's eight people for 120 counties. We do pride ourselves on taking care of those 120 counties. Um, so it's a big geographic area for each person. Uh, in Paducah, there's Nancy Harper. She has 17 counties. I'm in Bowling Green, and besides doing administrative duties, I'm uh, doing caseload uh, in 11 counties. Derek Cox is in Elizabethtown. He has 19 counties. Mike Bolton here in Louisville covers seven counties. Amber Watts out in Somerset has 18 counties. Jenny Ward in the Lexington office has 11 counties. Samantha Oldegas is in Covington. She has 16 counties. And out in Prestonsburg is Lisa Reynolds, and she has 21 counties. So you can see that each person has a big geographic area that they're responsible for. And they have main duties that they're responsible for as well. Um, each counselor is, is responsible for doing direct service for the folks who want to participate in the program. Um, that means that they're doing assessments, um, they're doing direct trainings, they're doing the case management that's required um, in order for us to maintain uh, caseloads for the funding tracks that we're involved with. Um, and one of the big duties for those counselors is outreach. 
Um, so they're going out to all those counties or talking to referral sources or talking to other professionals who um, may know of people who uh, would be blind or visually impaired who might need our independent living services. There's, they're doing a lot of networking um, out in those, in those counties. So that would explain why none of the counselors are in their offices a great deal of the time. Um, they're, they're out on the road, so to speak. I mentioned that the, one of the responsibilities is doing assessments. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit just about what services look like with the, with the independent living program. Uh, most of the time, the counselors are working with people in their homes. Um, if people do not want the counselor to come to their home, which does happen occasionally, we can work with them anywhere else. Um, if they're close enough to come into our office, that's great. If they're not, uh, we might use a community room in the library. Uh, we might go to a one-stop center that's close in that area. Uh, we're going to find some place to be able to work with that person. Uh, they work with them on, on peer support. Um, if maybe there's a group in their area that they uh, could participate that would offer them some support during a, a hard transition in time. And that lets me segue right into saying the word transition. I'm sure that this group has heard a lot about transition um, in the last few months. And independent living is involved in transition as well. Um, that's, that's becoming actually a core service at the federal level with independent living programs. And with independent living, we're talking about all ages of people. So we're talking about the, the youth, the students that you've probably heard a lot of talk about already. Uh, but we're also talking about older people who maybe want to leave the nursing home and go back out into the community. So transition is a big word um, anymore. And, and, and we're looking at it from all ages of people. I thought maybe it'd be interesting for you to have a little bit of an overview of what uh, fiscal year 2016 has brought for us so far. Um, in our case management system, as of the close of business on 420, one day this week, there were 533 case records that have been uh, entered into CMS, our case management system. Of that number, 438 are people who are over the age of 55 and 95 of them are under the age of 55. That would mean, that number to me tells me that we've had 333 new case records entered since October 1. So keep in mind, and there's eight people, really seven counselors out there, uh, who have managed 333 new case records since October. And I just find this interesting. I don't think it'll be surprising, just interesting, that of the 533 total number, 390 of those are female. Um, so I don't, I don't think that's a surprising number, um, but it is an interesting number uh, when you think about that. That means 73% of the number so far have been female this year. And I also thought you might find it interesting uh, to know that of these 533 people, they live in 102 counties um, in Kentucky. So we've, of the 120 counties that we have in the state, so far we've served 102 of them um, the first few months of this fiscal year. You know, I mentioned before they have, they travel a lot of miles and that's proof of it right there. Um, what's new? Um, the independent living program, as you may know, uh, the younger independent living program, 
was moved to the Academy for Health and Family Services, um, which is part of the WIOA law that we like to, to say, and they've named it that. Um, in Kentucky, that means that the um, younger independent living program, the centers for independent living that are around the state, they are now having um, the, the state unit that monitors them and administers those funds is now the Department of Aging and Independent Living. And I think the other sort of new thing within our um, own independent living program is that um, we're now going to be working more frequently with uh, kids. I think we've always been able to. The independent living program never excluded children or um, teenagers from their federal re regulations, but um, now it's going to become common uh, because as those kids are being um, worked with more in schools and our VR counselors are working with them more, we'll be working with them more as well. And uh, what's new about that is, is the frequency of it. And I think because it'll be more frequent, uh, we're going to be seeing our independent living counselors develop a little different skill set than they've been using because of the age group um, that will be frequenting our program more. Thank you, Gay. Page 5, The Sound Prince Calendar. In April, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind will have its spring quarterly meeting and elections, which has been rescheduled for April 29. It will begin with a GLCB roundabout from 3.30 to 4.45, including Braille, genealogy, and tech tips, bargain table from 4.45 to 5.30, ask the lawyer 5.30 to 6.30, dinner, business meeting, and elections from 6.30 to 8.30. $5 per person for the event. United Crescent Hill Ministries. For more information, call 502-895-4598. The calendar for May includes, on May 1, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind Committee meetings by telephone, advocacy at 7 p.m., Education and Technology at 8, and Activities at 9. Call 605-475-6006 and enter code 294444. On May 4th, KCB will hold its PR Membership Committee meeting at 8 p.m. on the same conference line. 605-475-6006, code 294444. On May 5, ACB Lions will have its conference call and Lions Everywhere are invited to attend. The monthly meeting gives Lions a chance to share ideas and ways to be involved in local clubs. It's at 9 Eastern and the number is 712-432-3900 and the code is 796096. On May 7, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind invites you to our Derby Party. Plan to come early, stay late, and enjoy friends, games, and fun all day. 10.30 a.m. to 7.30 p.m. at United Crescent Hill Ministries. The cost is $5 per person. Call 502-895-4598 to sign up. On May 8, KCB Next Generation will have its monthly conference call at 8 Eastern. 605-475-6006, enter code 294444. 
On May 10, the Support Alliance of the Visually Impaired, SAVVY, will have its monthly meeting from 1 to 3 p.m. Central Time at Wing Avenue Baptist Church, 628 Wing Avenue in Owensboro. Call Rick Boggess, 270-684-4418 for more information. On May 12, the Northern Kentucky Council of the Blind has its monthly conference call at 7 p.m. Call 605-475-4700 and enter code 155-619. May 13 is the next GLCB Roundabout. It includes Education and Technology, 3.30 to 5, Discussion Time, 5 to 6, Dinner, 6 to 7, $5 per person, Games and Crafts from 7 to 10, 895-4598 for more information. May 14, Exploring with All the Senses, Animals in the Backyard, from 10.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. It's an opportunity for hands-on activities and interactions with live animals. It's offered by the American Printing House for the Blind Museum in partnership with the Louisville Nature Center. Free for all ages. Registration is required. Call the museum at 502-899-2213. On May 14, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind will have its board meeting at 11 a.m. by conference call. 605-475-6006, enter code 294444. On May 14, the KCB Next Generation invites all council members to a picnic from 3.30 to 7 p.m. All chapters are invited. $5 for adults, $3 for children 3 to 8 years old. At the Brown Park, 1000 Browns Lane in St. Matthews, RSVP by April 30 by calling 502-750-1774 or email alsmoot87 at gmail.com. On May 15, the Kentucky School for the Blind will have its next alumni board meeting at 8 p.m. by conference call. 605-475-6006, enter code 294444. On May 16, KCB will have its monthly conference call at 8 p.m. Call 605-475-6006 and enter code 294444. On May 17, Tri-State Library users will have a dinner meeting in Louisville. More information coming soon. May 19 is the Kentucky School for the Blind Middle and High School Concert, 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. in the KSB Ritchie Auditorium. Call 502-897-1583 for information. On May 20, the Greater Louisville Council will have a roundabout from 3.30 to 10 p.m. The usual schedule will apply. 502-895-4598 for information. On May 22, ACB Families will have its May conference meeting at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Call 605-475-6333 and enter code 1711553. On May 23, Guide Dog Users of Kentucky has their May conference call meeting at 7 p.m. 605-475-6006. Enter code 294444. 
On May 24, the Kentucky School for the Blind will have its elementary recital and award ceremony from 12.30 to 2.30 p.m. in the Ritchie Auditorium at the school. Call 502-897-1583. May 25 is the Bluegrass Council Support Group meeting for May from noon to 2 p.m. at the BCB office in Lexington. 859-259-1834. On May 25, the Kentucky School for the Blind High School graduation is at 6.30 p.m. in the Ritchie Auditorium. Call 502-897-1583. May 27 is the last GLCB roundabout of the month, 3.30 to 10 p.m. at United Crescent Hill Ministries in Louisville, 895-4598 for details. If you have questions about the Kentucky Council of the Blind or you need information on resources for people with vision loss, call us at 502-895-4598 or email us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org. Sound Prince is a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind and is heard each week on ACB Radio Mainstream at acbradio.org, Central Kentucky Radio I at radioi.org, and the KCB website at www.kentucky-acb.org. Complete schedule information is also available on the website. Sound Prince is underwritten by the Louisville Downtown Lions Club, and by the American Printing House for the Blind. This is Carla Rushable for Sound Prints. Have a great week, everybody.